is episode 119 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. We have a wonderful crocodile focused paper for this episode. A beautiful good news, positive news, optimistic news story about our good friends, the crocodiles. Yes, yes. Yes, the American crocodile. I mean, it's a bit of an unsung hero, really, isn't it? Because when everyone thinks of American crocodilians, the alligator is sort of the poster child. Right. It's quite a handsome beast. It's really well proportioned, I would say, compared to the American crocodile. It's got that big, fat, meaty head. It's just a chunkier character. <laughs> they do have a very characteristic face that I think makes them quite endearing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which I like. But yeah, we're going to talk about the American crocodile. And like you said, yeah, it's actually a bit of optimism, which is something we are drawn to like moths to a flame when it comes to conservation stories. Quite often we have to sort of say, oh, you know, this species, yeah, cool, isn't it? But um, shame about the fact that humans are wreaking havoc on its ecosystem and oh, there's pollutants making it turn all weird. But actually, this is going to be a good news story. So stay tuned for that. But before we get into good news about the American crocodile, we have got something a little bit different. Ordinarily, we do a frog call at the beginning of every other episode, but instead, this week, we've got a little bit of a quiz because there was a paper came out, which was Renke, and actually there's like a billion authors for this paper. It's a serious undertaking, yeah. Yeah, so rather than reading out all the authors, which we would ordinarily do, because we do like to credit second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth authors, because <laughs> Seventh, all of their... 7th, 8th, 10th, Yeah, yeah I mean, this is like 50 authors, <laughs> there'd be no space much. in the podcast for anything else. So we're just going to say this is by Renke. They're probably all listed in the show notes, right? Oh, they'll all be in the show yeah. notes, yeah. Yeah, so um, if you want to know who it's by, and if you want it, yeah, it's on there. But yeah, this is by Renke et al, 2022, and it was Diverse Aging Rates in Ectothermic Tetrapods Provide Insights for the Evolution of Aging and Longevity, published in Science. And what all that means is, it's a lot of words to basically say, how old do animals get? What's going on there? How old do these uh, ectothermic tetrapods, so amphibians and reptiles? And the ectothermic ones are kind of fascinating in a lot of ways because you have less you know the metabolism's different you know you think about how old tortoises can get and stuff there's a lot of interesting mysterious things going on more so than you know some mammals that we're quite familiar with because we happen to live that mammal existence ourselves yeah and they're relatable aren't they they make milk we can get involved with that yeah right so yeah, no, I mean, you say that, we, you know, tortoises live a long time. You're going to be guessing just how long these animals live. And obviously, if you're listening along, you can decide. And if you get them all right, we won't believe you anyway. So don't bother telling us. <laughs> <laughs> but Ben's going to guess how old these animals are. Yeah, essentially, this study has gathered together loads and loads of mark recapture data from loads of different animals and has given us the best impression yet of how long many of these animals live. There are still some inconsistencies, like I wanted to do the Escalapian snakes, Aminus longissimus, the ice study, but there was two wildly different estimates, so I left it out because can't be too sure. But ones which have like a good amount of sample size and a good guess of how long they live, I've included in this quiz for you to try and guess, Ben. So just before we jump into the quiz... I'm guessing the paper isn't just listing a whole bunch of how old these animals get. I'm guessing there's some sort of question or something that they're getting at. Yes. It's kind of a mathematical paper about the methods of estimating age. Ah, okay. So more methods focused rather than out and out 
have a question about, I don't know, body size versus age or something in ectotherms. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's like, the whole point is, yeah, it's, we don't know that much about mortality of animals in the wild. We want to know more about the evolution of aging. So they look at sort of various things like their method of thermoregulation, um, the temperature they live at, ah, yep. their pace of life, and how these contribute to aging. So it's an exploratory sort of mission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And looking at like whether or not there's sort of like whether protective phenotypes, so like adaptations that protect them from predators, explain where how things age and sort of their tactics in life and whether mm -hmm, that has mm -hmm. effects, all that kind of stuff. But all I picked out was like, hey, how long does that thing live? Yeah. <laughs> and then you can try and guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's start off with uh, one of our native species of snake here. The second coolest one after the introduced Escalapian snake, I think pretty much everyone will agree. Viperoberus, the adder. Yep. So a UK viper species, the UK's only venomous snake species. Yes. How long are you thinking there? It's times venom? like this that you realise how unbelievably ungrounded I am <laughs> when it comes to... Like, that's a very basic question. I'm going to guess uh, 15 years. Not bad, mate. Not bad. The estimate here is 11 years. Oh, okay. Yep. And um, how old do you think they are when they first reproduce on average? Two. Four. Oh. Four years old. Four years of growing. Four years of growing. I suppose it makes yeah. sense. So, you know, they're high latitude snakes, aren't they? The growth is probably a little bit on the slow side. Yep. 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 That they're just waiting up. for those sunny days. All right. So now for a little bit of a slippery customer, mm -hmm. an animal we've talked about on the podcast quite a lot, Ambistoma maculatum, the spotted salamander. Our American listeners will probably be familiar with this salamander. How long are they living? I think salamanders are a live fast, die young kind of group. So oh, yeah. I'm going to go for five years. Five years for Ambistoma maculata and the spotted salamander. Yep. Well, Ben, you've grossly underestimated. Oh. They live for 14 years. Really? But Damn. I'm sure the longevity right here is like the age at which most of them have died, right? So like 5% of them might live to be older than... Yes, it's not maximum age. It's mean yeah. sort of... Or median, I suppose. is Well, it's not. It's like, how old are 95% of them dead by? It's like a sort of tail end of how long they might live, really. How old are 95%? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. That's a weird thing to picture in your mind, but I got it. It is a weird thing to picture in your mind. But it's also a very sensible metric, too. It is, yeah, because you get 5% of freaks. Right. They just don't die. Man, I was way off. <laughs> well, you know, what... You, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But again, you know... Underestimate salamanders, apparently. Yeah, it's kind of what you, similar to what you said about the adder, though. I mean, like, they probably have, like, quite pronounced seasonalities. So maybe it's just seasonality, cold times, warm times, live, yeah. live longer. Yeah, potentially. potentially. Bit of a broad... If we'd read the whole paper, we might be able to say more about that. So, um, Emis orbicularis, the European pond turtle, the only species of native turtle in much of Ooh. Europe. Pond turtles, I mean, it's a turtle, so probably ancient. I'm going for 42 years. <laughs> Seriously impressive guess, mate. 44 is oh. the longevity lifespan they've got here. That's that's very impressive. Nice. That's a good guess. <laughs> that was a great guess, mate. So how old do you think they are when they first reproduce? I'm still going to labour under the assumption that longer-lived animals are going to be sexually mature later. 
Yeah. So I think that it's going to take him a good eight years to get going. Another great guess. Ten years on average. So yeah, many of them probably are just reproducing at eight. Great stuff. Okay, here's another popular snake species our American listeners might well be familiar with. Uh, Thamnophis elegans, the western garter snake. That mm. little fish and frog and toad eating snake that is famous for having brig mating aggregations, breeding bulls and coming out of holes at the same time every year. So Viperoberus was 11 and I reckon this guy's less than that. I reckon they've got a faster lifestyle than Viperoberus, so I'm going to go for eight. 17. Oh, really? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. A little bit longer lived than the old adder. Hmm. Okay, here's a tough one. Here's a tough one. And we have talked about this species a bit on the podcast because they're famous for forming mate bonds that last for many, many years. Talika rugosa, this is, the shingleback skink. So it's that relative of blue tongue skinks that's got the hard bony, I think they're osteoderms, on the back. Yeah. And they're from Australia. They call them the sleepy lizard. I reckon they're longer than I would suspect. Because my first instinct is like 12 years, but I reckon it's more like 22. 22 is your guess. Yeah, 22 is my guess. Anyone guessing longer? You're probably closer. You're definitely closer. 50 years. 50 50 years. years. 50 years for Talika Rugosa. They're like moving rocks. They are like moving rocks. Imagine that. Imagine if they paired up. And they had their partner for potentially 30 or 40 years. God, I mean, that's probably where a lot of the sort of, why it's sort of stuck in the cultural, why that's a reference point for them. Like, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? That's really neat. Mm, 50 years. Longer than a pond turtle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Remarkable. So how about this one? We got the freshwater crocodile. We talked about this one a couple of episodes ago in relation to eating cane toads and getting a bit shy about eating things on the water's edge. Crocodilus johnstoni, freshwater Mm. crocodile. I reckon that's going to be 2026. Yeah. 43. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they're no joke. I mean, it's crocodilians. They're they're ancient. They're ancient beasts. That makes a lot of sense. But then I was like, hmm, freshwater probably a faster lighter croc (laughs) (laughs) so what about this one this is the last one i've got for you it's another uk species triturus cristatus the great crested newt famous for its colorful crest and spotty belly which is orange and black and each one has its own unique Mm. belly you can tell who's who i underestimated the salamander so so yeah, let's go back to that. That was Ambistoma maculatum, the spotted salamander. 14 years they lived, Ben, just to give you a Yeah, I reckon great crested newt is going to be a little bit longer. I reckon it's going to be 18. Oh, it's a great guess. 20 years. 20, 20 years. years. Yeah, 20 years. Excellent. I think you did pretty well, mate, overall, I'm to be honest. I'm kind of surprised how well I did for some Yeah, you go back yourself. Because I could tell going into it, you seemed a little bit nervous. You feel like you may maybe completely humiliate yourself. Um, and obviously, you will be judged harshly. But Yeah, like I couldn't bring to mind any age, like average age of any herpetofauna with any confidence. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I think, to be honest, it is an area which we've kind of, up to now, not really known that much about for most animals because... You know, without actually just doing long-term mark recapture studies, well, you don't very really long get an term. Idea. Yeah, like forty-year long-term mark recapture studies. That's a long time to keep track of the same animal IDs in a way that's reliable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they have much stuff from tropical areas, or was it? Were you sort of limited to uh, 
stuff in North America, Europe, and Australia. Yeah, yeah. As an example, the shingleback skink study was a 37-year study. Mm-hmm. Just having a quick look. No, it seems to mostly be uh, not much going on in the tropics. Yeah, there's certainly fewer long-term studies ongoing there, but it's, it's be interesting to see when they, hopefully, ones that are ongoing now sort of come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah, I can't see any that I can sort of that jump out at me as being um, tropical ones. Cool, well, there you go. There's the longevity of some animals. I'd suggest people check out the Renke et al. paper if they're interested in uh, aging and how it is related to a bunch of other factors to do with uh, ectotherm lifestyles and life strategies. Well, and it's wild, wild data, which is doubly fascinating. Exactly, exactly. So let's move from... <laughs> lifespans to egg laying habits bit of a jarring one but i would have gone with we're talking about 50 year long-term monitoring projects well this paper is a 50 year monitoring project for crocs in uh, southern florida that's very true that would have been good so this <laughs> <laughs> this is a paper by Mazotti, Balaguer, Arena, Brandt, Briggs, Gonzalez, Cherkis, Farris, and Godahewa, published in 2022. Natural and anthropogenic factors influencing nesting ecology of the American crocodile in Florida, United States. And this was published in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. So, as we said earlier, we're talking about the American crocodile, America's second most popular <laughs> crocodilian crocodilian thank you and yeah so it's kind of all about the nesting behavior of this species so nesting success the making of nests and the hatching of eggs is a great way to measure how well a species is doing obviously when you've got eggs eggs can't really defend themselves they're very vulnerable they can easily die particularly in the case of crocodile eggs they can die via predation maybe a raccoon digs them up or they can die by getting too wet, or they can die by getting too dry. Eggs are pretty vulnerable to changes in the environment. Conditions have to be just right. And this was a big study looking at how the nesting of crocodiles, how many nests they've been making and where they've been making them over a 50-year period. But before we get too much into the egg part of the paper, just wanted to talk a bit about the American crocodile itself. So Crocodilus acutus is the scientific name of this species. Crocodilus. Because they're so damn cute. Yeah, they're acutest than all the others. Yeah. <laughs> no. Crocodilus is actually derived from the Greek word crocodalos, which literally means pebble worm. Croco is pebble, delos is worm, or man. We were just talking about shinglebacks. If there's a pebble worm lizard, it should be those guys. <laughs> yeah. But I accept that <laughs> the Greeks didn't weren't aware of shinglebacks. Yeah, yeah. That's true, yeah. But this is, yeah, and of course, crocodiles, not lizards, mm -hmm. but still, the point remains. But this pebble worm, it could also mean pebble man, which would be even funnier, <laughs> uh, kind of refers to the appearance of a crocodile. It looks like it's got pebbles all down the back, if you've got an imagination. A pretty active imagination, I'd say. So you've got pebble back, as that's what crocodilus means. And then the species epithet, acutus, the second half of the name, that is named after the Latin aquari which means sharp or acutus, which means sharpened or pointed. And 
it's thought that that is a reference to the fact that it's got a pointy face. Ah, the sharp pebble worm, of course. The sharp pointy pebble worm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that is probably in comparison to the American alligator, which obviously has the big blunt head, which I really right. like. And actually, when they first described this species, when it was first being talked about, the, or at least talked about scientifically, the American crocodile was originally known as the sharp snout alligator before people realised it was actually a crocodile in the 1800s. And then it got its name, the American crocodile. Yeah, did not know that. Very cool. And uh, yeah, this species is distributed in South Florida and then all across coastal Mexico into South America and along the Caribbean and Pacific coasts, including some insular areas in places like Cuba, Jamaica and Hispaniola. So yeah, sort of um, coastal areas in America and south, south of there as well. And this is a species which has been classified as vulnerable by the IUCN who decide whether species are endangered. And it has experienced severe declines in the past due to overexploitation and habitat loss. And it was in 1975 that America decided to place the species on the federal endangered species list, which, as we'll discuss, was kind of a bit of a turning point for the species. Yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty safe statement to say. <laughs> I mean, it certainly seems like they've been doing a lot better now than they were in the 1970s. That's for sure. Yeah. So... We're talking about crocodile nests, American crocodile nests. But you're probably thinking, where do they like nesting? Well, coastal areas are their favourite. They like to be nearby freshwater or brackish habitats. They don't like it to be too salty, the water. They also don't like it too windy and not too much wave action either. If there's lots of waves, because they lay their eggs in sand, you don't want it to be too wavy. Yeah, that would suggest that the neck... Exactly, they're going to get washed away. And I think a lot of people, when they picture in their mind's eye, a crocodilian nest will have an image of a big pile of sort of leaves and twigs and stuff that the crocodile's sitting on guarding. That's actually not the sort of style of American crocodiles. They tend to build nests that are either just holes in sand, so they'll just dig a hole in some sand, or other earthen material. So as, you know, like maybe there's been some sort of dead leaves, they've kind of rotted down and there's like a pile of dead stuff. They'll dig a little hole in the top of that and lay their eggs in that, but they don't go around gathering up material to build their nests. And just as a point to sort of prove this, this whole study, they've just got data from going out and searching for those wonderful nests and they've collected this data over 50 years and we've got a paper that's sort of summarising where they are and the potential drivers of where they are and potential drivers of success. That's it. And one of the key things they highlight is mangrove swamps as like a critical area these crocs are using for nesting. And what you've just described there of needing somewhere that's sheltered from wind and storm and stuff, I mean, you know, that's exactly what mangrove swamps do, isn't it? They're a wonderful coastal defence and uh, provide wonderful shelter from you know, a heck of a lot of energy that the uh, Atlantic Ocean can produce. Yeah, not many habitats can take credit for not only nursing really cool crocodilian species, but also protecting from tsunamis. Yeah. And even like nurse sharks and stuff love swimming around. There's like nurseries for nurse sharks in these areas. Like, yeah, mangroves are pretty miraculous. Crazy important. Yeah. And um, yeah, just going back to the nests, the mother crocodile has to dig the babies out. The babies can't dig their way out. I just thought that was an interesting fact. You think of crocodiles as being pretty uh, well prepared for life, but when they're in the nest, they're stuck. They have to get dug out, which is 
not that impressive. <laughs> I mean, you say that, but you also think of crocodiles as one of the prime examples of... I mean, I know they're not technically reptile reptiles, right? Because they're archosaurs or whatever. But um, one of the sort of key examples of herpetofaunal sort of maternal care, right? Right. With the little young making their little cheeping noises and mother croc being about to keep them safe, carry them around in their mouths. You know, there's some pretty yeah. wonderfully relatable, I suppose, is, is a one way of putting it, behavior for these crocs that people can lump in with your incorrect, cold-blooded reptile sort of uh, stereotype thing. They're a nice counterpoint to that a lot of the time. They are. They do seem to, well, they do look after their young and the mothers actually carry the babies, sometimes kilometers from the nest to water, right. which is obviously a pretty painstaking process when you've got, so, you know, like 30, 40 babies to carry around. So it makes sense that they'll be about to dig them out, you know, yeah. that doesn't seem like too much of a, <laughs> too much of a stretch. Yeah. And so, as you said, they've conducted surveys for crocodile nests over a 50-year period. And over that 50-year period, they located over 3,000 nests. And they were looking for nests via various means. Motorboats, a John boat, don't know what that is, canoe, and on foot. And of course, it wouldn't be a study taking place on reptiles in Florida without a helicopter being involved. Sometimes they got the heli up and flew around looking for nests. I mean, how cool is that? What kind of herpetologists are these? The bougiest ones ever. <laughs> With their helicopters. Yeah. How do you see a crocodile nest from a helicopter? I don't know. I suppose they're flying quite low and they've got decent I'll tell bios. you how, Ben. Yeah, years of experience. That too, how. yeah. And actually, I had yes. a little look. It's funny you say that. I had a little look. I actually know. They look for footprints and tail drags. Ah, oh, and that leads them to where the nests are. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So they can see where the, the crocodiles have been digging the holes. And um, yeah. And they can also find nests once they've been, if they get dug up by predators, then you can see eggs on the surface and yeah. like a little divot. Yeah. Catch a, catch a little glinting white egg down there or remains of them. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess what we can broadly say is that there seems to be an increase in the amount of nests that have been found since the 1970s. Yeah, massively so. Yeah. yeah, what was it, 1970, they found 93 nests. 93 nests for a whole species right. is bad, bad, Well, bad. not whole species, whole species in Florida. In Florida. Because they do in exist Florida. outside. And then 2010s, we're talking 1,500 almost. Boom. Like, that's substantial. And it's not that's even like there's just about. more of them. They seem to be having better success rates too. Jumping from like a 60% yeah. success rate up to 75 in the 2000s and then 90 in the uh, 2010s. So we've got this massive explosion in the number of nests and a seeming increase at the same time in the success of nests hatching, right? So more nests hatching, good news on good news for the American crocodile. And it seems as though this improvement in the nesting success of the species is really down to a few good and some just fortuitous happenings on the part of humankind, basically. Yeah. So in the Everglades National Park, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service purchased Crocodile Lake National Wildlife Refuge to protect crocodile nesting habitat that had been created as a result of an illegal dredge and fill operation. So basically, somebody had been dredging and then filling up. I'm not sure why, but somebody or a company had been doing this illegal dredging of the waterways and then presumably... Um, they dumped all the stuff they dredged somewhere and for whatever reason that created a habitat for the crocodiles 
US Fish and Wildlife were on it. They noticed this habitat had been created and they bought it to protect it, which is awesome. Beyond that, there's a company called Florida Power and Light and they have a turkey, this place called Turkey Point Power Plant, which is in um, Miami-Dade County. And when they bought that site, they, as part of the permitting and licensing for their power production stuff to go on, they were obligated to manage the American crocodiles on the site. So they've been doing that, which is great. They've been kind of maintaining their habitat or at least ensuring that they're not damaging the habitat. Yeah, well, I think part of it is that the power plant needs sort of cooling areas, water cooling areas. So you've got the more, you've got stable areas of water that crocodiles can make use of. It's like an inadvertent habitat creation sort of scenario where the yeah, stuff incidentally made for the uh, power plant is good for crocodiles. It's really nice to hear. And yeah, there was also some canals in an area called Cape Sable. And yeah, essentially in the sort Cape of late Cape Sable 80s, hit some of the like prime Everglades National Park region. Right. Okay. Yeah, they plugged up. So they had some canals that had been dug to sort of drain water out, but those were plugged up, which meant that the water was less able to sort of flow freely out, which increased wet areas locally and obviously the sort of damp sandy areas that were created by plugging these canals are good for the crocodiles to nest in so again another sort of positive outcome of human goings on so yeah basically a lot of the reason that there's been this increase in nests of the american crocodile is because crocodiles are nesting on these artificial substrates especially along like levees and berms sort of the sides of canals and ditches which have been dug for various purposes or there's just more wet areas where canals have been plugged so yeah essentially the crocodiles seem to be making extremely good use of lots of new areas which humans are creating and that's cool because it kind of illustrates that these crocodiles are pretty open-minded they're adaptable (laughs) yeah they're not just like oh we can only make our nests in these specific swampy locations nah generations of crocodiles decide they set out to go and look for a nice place to lay their eggs and they find success you know they're mobile animals they're experimenting they're trying out new things they're adaptable and they're finding cool places to lay their eggs i mean that's reflected in the sort of numbers and now up to eight kilometers squared of uh nesting area compared to 0.05 0.05 in the 1970s and 1.5 in the 1980s. So it's, it's remarkable. They are expanding in number and in where they are. But I think not just the habitat's a critical thing to highlight. I think it's also them being designated as a a, a threatened or endangered species too. It's actually recognising that these guys need protection and you can't... Because if you had an animal that was just expanding into human areas, well, it's not going to end well, is it? Like, just that's how people tend to perceive animals suddenly appearing in places even if they're doing no harm they'll be treated like they are so Mm. i think that protection is a massively important point as well as them sort of being adaptable enough to make use of these leftover areas yep big credit something's going on because i mean the cape sable area with the everglades has seen massive increase in nest numbers in the 2010s so i don't think there's any been any sort of additional modification there in habitat at least i didn't remember reading it in the paper so that just seems to be them getting all recovering bit by bit or maybe others coming in from other areas i don't know but it's yeah yeah i think the protection's a big deal <laughs> what yeah I'm absolute at. credit goes to the various no doubt there's been some extremely um, vocal and 
driven and diligent conservationists who've helped to bring about this change in conjunction with uh, US Fish and Wildlife. It's just great to see a species which is living, you know, in like an extremely economically developed country where there is a lot of human activity, particularly along coastlines and stuff like that, you know, for various reasons, be it tourism or whatever, but they've, or power generation, but yeah, despite everything, the crocodiles have exploded in where they're willing to nest i take it back with the i just went looking for the cape sable stuff and the sort of everglades angle and that was their boost has been concurrent with the plugging of buttonwood and east cape canals so that's Uh basically lower salinity areas were created in the wetlands which helped boost hatchling growth and survival so there was human undoing of some other human changes to help boost those that wasn't just a protection going on there gotcha Cool. So there we go. A conservation success story for the American crocodile. Yeah, I think one little sort of weird note. You mentioned uh, raccoons, loving them tasty crocodile eggs. Raccoons. Raccoons, yeah. They mentioned at the end that raccoon numbers have taken a little bit of a hit because they're getting eaten by Burmese pythons. So we have this weird scenario of invasive species eating mesopredator, boosting crocodiles this you know we always talk about how complicated these uh, introduced or invasive species are in terms of modifying the ecosystem and yeah. this is a wonderful little example of just that so what are they eating that's helping the crocodiles they're eating the raccoons the raccoons eat oh, the, the raccoons. eggs the burmese oh pythons God. eat the raccoons and therefore relieving I the pressure see. on the crocodile eggs because there are fewer raccoons because they're all inside of burmese pythons oh Oh, wow. Yeah, not really ideal. (laughs) What are they going to do when they run out of raccoons, though? Are they going to eat crocodiles? Well, I mean, there's definitely been images and footage of them trying to take uh, alligators and stuff, smaller alligators. Yeah. So, wow. I don't know. It's just an interesting little case study. Very difficult to work out, you know, future impacts, but it seems to be happening. Yeah. Wow. Well, there we go. I mean, Burmese pythons in the Everglades. Yeah, goodness knows. Wow. I wonder if there's been a, yeah, I mean, there's so many papers to come out of this, isn't there? Like have perhaps, you know, like all the stuff we've been doing recently about the behavior of animals in response to invasive species. I wonder if raccoons now know that there's like this landscape of fear around these wetland bars where Burmese pythons hang out. It's not a safe mode of foraging anymore since the Burmese pythons are around. Maybe they're disinclined to do it. Yeah. yeah, or maybe they start smelling them or work out other cues that tip them off that there's a Burmese python about and, you know, you're going to get this predation pressure from the raccoons, going to boost back up. Yeah, Crazy. who knows? This is the thing. It's so complicated. It's almost impossible to predict with any confidence. Yeah, mad. All right, but there we go. A still a successful story for the American crocodile. Oh, for which sure. Is great to read. It's great to see them coming species. back. Yeah, making a go of it, despite everything humans are doing. And also thanks to some of the things that humans are doing. So, have you got any other business for this episode? Nope. No business. No other business? Nope. I did have another business, and it's not even about reptiles, but I just thought, or amphibians, it's about a fish, but I just thought it was so nuts. This better be a damn good fish. Uh, all right, listen, I really like fish. We don't talk about it on the podcast ever because it's herpetological highlights, but I actually do. Sometimes we talk about them getting eaten. Yeah, occasionally, but I have a real source for fish, and I just wanted to mention this to you, Ben, because I thought you'd care. Yep. There, so up until about two weeks ago, the largest fish in the world, the largest freshwater fish in the world was 
the Mekong giant catfish from the Mekong River in Cambodia? Well, no longer. There's a new biggest fish in the world, biggest freshwater fish in the world. The title has been taken by a 660 pound stingray, which is 13 feet long. And it came from the Mekong River in northeastern Cambodia, just like the Mekong giant catfish. But this thing is huge, mate. 13 feet. Oh, yes. I'm looking at pictures of this massive fish. It's huge. People are just <sighs> chilling in the water with it. Yeah. I think it's probably tired. Yeah. Holy smokes. That is a big fish. Yep. And it beat out a Mekong giant catfish by about 14 pounds to be the biggest fish. I have no idea what that means. So the Mekong catfish is like this really ugly fish. Well, no, I mean pounds. Oh, yeah. It's an American article, so it's in pounds. I already looked up what the giant Mekong catfish looked like. They look hilarious. I love them. Yeah, they are funny. Yeah, they are funny. How many kgs oh, is So that? we got 293 kilograms was oh. the Mekong giant catfish. This yeah. monster stingray was 300 kilograms. Just under 300 kilograms. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Pretty cool though, right? That's New outrageous. Fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a... good, I... <sighs> good. I'm glad it was a good enough reason to make an exception. Yeah. Oh, keep the Mekong safe. Yeah. Stop. Don't put dams in the Mekong. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So that pretty much rounds off the episode on crocodile conservation. If you want to get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com. If you've got any corrections, anything like that, we'd love to hear them. If you've got questions, etc. Sorry, I'm still dealing with this stingray. Like you've, It's four meters long and two meters wide. They yeah, put a, a little big, big... tracker on him to find out where he goes. That's oh, so freaking cool. Ah, that's amazing. Yeah, he's got an acoustic tag. Well, that's exciting. Oh, my gosh. It'd be very interesting to see how far. He's called Boromai. I, he, she, they, which means full moon. Oh. oh, because he's like a big moon. Yeah. That's amazing. That's incredible. That's great. Oh, so man, he's out yeah. swimming out there. They're swimming out there in the Mekong, calling, calling back with a little acoustic tag beautiful imagine if that thing was trying to eat you you're just a little benthic animal just sort of sitting on the riverbed and then suddenly this thing with electromagnetic blocks out the sun over it. yeah the, the moon the moon comes it's a blooming <laughs> <laughs> oh incredible yeah four meters long it just Two eclipses everything i am the moon and then just yeah gobbles you up yeah incredible incredible yeah but yeah sorry <laughs> brought up a so, stingray and that's all i'm going to be able to think about for the rest of the day we're going to be doing there's going to be more fish creeping in after this positive reaction <laughs> okay so yeah i said herp highlights at gmail.com and we're on social media instagram facebook follow us at herp highlights on instagram please and yeah leave us a review if you'd feel so kind we had some really nice reviews someone said that we were a joy and you don't understand <laughs> that's the feeling that gives me yeah that people wow that's so kind so yeah positive reviews we get an email every time someone leaves us a review anywhere and it brightens our day to no end so thank you for Legit everyone who's does. doing that yeah. all right wicked yeah everything said i think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening yeah, thanks for listening